And uh, now, if you wish, uh, you can bring to mind uh, the perception and feeling uh, of some of these beautiful spiritual qualities uh, we have been developing here, uh, like the feelings of kindness and friendliness and generosity. Uh, and just ask yourself for a few moments, uh, what do these things mean? Uh, what do they feel like? Yeah. Imagine the planet Earth in your mind's eye, this beautiful planet of blue and green and brown and white. And you can see it in your mind's eyes, bathing in this beautiful, kindly, friendly, loving, golden light. This beautiful quality emanating from your heart, bathing all of these beings on the planet. And I wish all of these beings, may you all be well. May you all be happy here. And uh, then you can uh, add to that perception uh, all of these beautiful beings that are connected with this planet, uh, all the devas, uh, all, these pe- all these beings who have practiced these qualities uh, to a very high level, uh, very pure-hearted, bright and beautiful beings. Uh, they too belong to this earth. Uh, may all of these beings, uh, may you all be well and happy here. Uh,
and there. Then bring your attention back into this room, uh, to all these wonderful people you have shared this retreat with. Uh, and every one of you, thank you for being a spiritual friend. Uh, thank you for sharing this retreat with me. Uh, I wish every one of you, I wish you well-being uh, and happiness. Uh, And uh, then just uh, come back to your breath, just for a few moments. And uh, finally, take a few moments just to reflect on the meditation, uh, to understand the process. Uh.
Gee, it's a lot here. <laughs> we shall see what happens. Uh, so, um, okay, so let's just start. Uh, and uh, uh, so, dear Ajahn, can you please explain the relationship between mind and consciousness? Uh, it is said that as one of the criteria for the next destiny at rebirth is the last thought or the chuti chitta. How does thought and consciousness get connected here? Um, so mind and consciousness, the uh, idea here is that you have to kind of go back and to look at the Pali terms, uh, yeah, to see what we mean by these things. Uh, and usually the word that is translated as mind into English is usually the word chitta, which is the word you are saying here, the chuti chitta. And consciousness is usually the word vinyana. Yeah? So what is the difference between these words, both in English and in Pali? And the vinyana is like the awareness. Yeah? It is like one particular aspect of the mind. The mind has many aspects. It has feelings. There is the will. There is perception. And consciousness is just really the idea of just the awareness itself. It is an abstraction. It doesn't actually exist on its own in reality, but it's just a way of learning how to look at the various factors in the mind. In reality, it comes as a connection of many factors together at the same time. And that connection of all the factors coming together is called citta. It's mind. It has an overall view of, of the mental aspects of, of existence. So that is really the difference there. One is an artificial abstraction used for inside purposes, and the other one is an overall idea of what the mind is about. Uh, the destiny at rebirth, uh, the last thought. Uh, this is an um, idea that you find in the commentaries, not an idea you actually find in the suttas. Uh, uh, even the word chuti chitta, it's like a, an abhidhamma, Word, yeah, meaning chut is like passing away, chitta is mind, it's the mind moment you have when you pass away, and it's not really found in the suttas. Uh. And it's this idea that, and this is, uh, I, th I think it's a slightly dangerous idea. It means that the last mind moment you have is very important because it connects with the patisandhi vinyana, which is the connecting consciousness, which then is the first consciousness in the next existence, and there's no gap in between. You die then you get reborn straight away. That is the kind of traditional Theravadan worldview. But um, it doesn't seem to be that the rebirth works in that way, according to the suttas. Uh, there seems to be some time in between, like an antarabhava, as it's called in the, uh, some of the other texts, like the uh, Katavattu, for example, one of the books of the Abhidhamma Pitaka, where they talk about various views of the world, uh, and they talk about the antarabhava, and as far as I can see, that is kind of confirmed by the suttas. Yeah? There is like a time in between, and uh, then you get reborn. And what that means is that the last thought moment is not so important. Yeah? Because the last thought moment, then there is some time in between, and it's like the kamma and your mental state and your overall feeling about yourself is worked out during that intermediate existence. That's probably when you have a life review, and so you judge yourself to a certain extent, and then you send yourself off, either to a good destiny or a bad destiny, depending on what you feel you deserve. Yeah? We kind of judge ourselves in this way. Yeah? 
So I have, I've never really been very keen on this idea that the last thought moment is so important. And it kind of puts a lot of pressure on you, on your deathbed. Yeah, think kind thoughts now. This is your last opportunity. Yeah. And you can imagine you, you're trying to die for goodness sake. You just want to relax. Yeah? You don't want to have the pressure on your, on your deathbed to think something nice. So I think the, the right approach is just to relax yeah? and enjoy the dying process. Uh, it can be, as far as I'm concerned, it can, I think it can be a very beautiful process uh, as long as we allow it to kind of happen in a, in a good way. Yeah? So um, anyway, that's my kind of uh, idea of that. Uh. All right. Uh, Dear Adzan, how to be joyful uh, sitting there when we know there are so many living beings suffering here? Thank you. Um, <laughs> it is how, a lot of these things is how you focus on these things. Yeah, it is how you think about things. And yes, the suffering in the world can make you sad if you look at it in a certain way. Um, but uh, it is also just reality in another way. It is the way the world is. Uh, yeah? And uh, uh, sometimes we judge the world in the wrong way. We see suffering, but suffering is not necessarily, there's much more to the world happening than suffering. Yeah? And sometimes people who suffer can also be very good people. Yeah? So on the one hand, you can say, okay, this person is suffering a lot, but actually their long-term prospects are actually very good. This is the weird thing about the world. Uh, we are sad. Sometimes we are sad about the things we should not be sad about, uh, and we're not sad about the things maybe we should be sad about. Uh, we get things wrong anyway. Uh. So you know, you see the war happening in Ukraine, for example, a lot of suffering, people being killed, and, and families being torn apart, and all of these things. And of course, a lot of suffering happening. Uh. But actually, that may be a sh that's often just a short-term suffering. Yeah. What, happening, what happens to those people in the long run really depends on the quality of the heart. Yeah. And sometimes that kind of time of war brings people together. Sometimes it brings out the best qualities in people. Yeah. And there have been people writing about this, in, uh, you know, about the weird experience of being in a war zone, everything collapsing and feeling more happy because all these good qualities come out. Yeah. And if those good qualities come out, then the war paradoxically leads to a good future for some of these people. Not for all of them, but for some of them. So it's so complicated. So when you look at the world, don't look just at the surface. Look at things in a deeper way. Often it's very different from what it may appear to be like. So, um, yeah, but you're right. There is, at the end of the day, yes, there is a lot of suffering in the world. And uh, sometimes you just have to uh, focus on the goodness in the world. There's also a lot of goodness in the world. Uh, and sometimes we don't see the goodness. Uh, and sometimes we need to remember that. Uh, and when you see that, there is always a source of hope there, a source of a positivity. There are Buddhas coming into the world on regular intervals. Uh, they create all of these positive conditions for people to practice in a good way, to be kind. Uh, what a wonderful thing that is. Uh, it's not just all dark. It's a mix of dark and bright. Yeah? And eventually, those being in the darkness, eventually, many of them, maybe all of them eventually, will find the right path, yeah? So sometimes it's just a matter of time, and give it enough time, and then they also have the opportunity here. Yeah? So try to think about, try to reflect on these things in the right way, yeah? And uh, then you are 
uh, if you take on all the suffering of all the beings in the world, uh, then you're never going to find any happiness. Uh, you need to think about this in a way that actually enables the path. Uh, so try some of those uh, ideas I just mentioned and see what happens. Uh, How do we differentiate the aversion in the five hindrances and the aversion of Nibbida? I can see the differences, but they are somewhat similar, repelling. Many thanks. So the, the word aversion in English actually means just to be repelled by something. Yeah? And I have noticed that in contemporary English is very common to use aversion almost as a synonym for ill will or anger, but actually it is not really a synonym. Aversion means that you are something, oh, don't want to see it. Uh, like you see something very disgusting or unpleasant and you turn away. It doesn't mean you have anger, it's just something you don't want to be near, like suffering or whatever. Uh, and that is the aversion of Nibida, where you, oh, don't want to go there, it's suffering. You want to leave it behind, you are repelled by it. Uh, the uh, aversion of the five hindrances is actually ill will. It's like you're angry with someone. Yeah? Anger, it is, it is, a, it is ob- a very unwholesome quality, whereas aversion is not necessarily unwholesome. Uh, one is where you want to do bad things as a consequence. The other one is just you want to leave something behind because it's suffering. Yeah? That is really the difference there. Yeah? Okay, dear Ajramali, tell us about your mum and dad. What are their most lovable qualities with Metta? <laughs> um, all right. <laughs> this is getting very personal, isn't it? <laughs> really? <laughs> okay. Well, my dad has already passed away. So, uh, you know, it's, uh, that's three years ago, whatever. Uh, actually, just over three years ago, I think it is now. And uh, I, had, I was very lucky, I had very good parents, uh, yeah, they always supported me, always kind of did the right thing. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I was never a kind of, there's no kind of physical punishment at all in, in my entire life. That's not the way things were done in kind of our family or usually in actually those Scandinavian societies. Physical punishment is not part of that. Uh, and it didn't make me into an evil person, yeah? You don't need physical punishment to actually to bring up children in a good way. I think that's kind of the proof of it. Uh, and uh, so I, I really recommend people to put that to one side. There's no need for that, uh, to, you know, for people think it's required to bring up people in a good way. And I think that's actually a, a mistake. I think usually it backfires. Uh, uh, so, yeah, and so I was always uh, very, kind of very supported. I grew up in a kind of, good household and uh, uh, my father was a very generous person yeah and uh, well, after I became a monk he wanted to give money to the Buddhist society so he gave some donations here for example uh, and they were very open-minded so usually when your son becomes a Buddhist monk they reject you what Buddhist monk is evil uh, and initially they were a bit like that they really didn't know what this was about at all they think I had been brainwashed by some kind of evil sect and I would disappear forever after <laughs> that's kind of the thing that happens yeah but uh, they're very open people so after a while and you know I turned out to be not you know I turned out to be maybe nicer than I was before <laughs> and that opened their eyes yeah what's going on here what's happening here and uh, well, so this is this is kind of one of the benefits of having parents like that is that they actually started to come around yeah 
And um, they were never really religious at all. And so they kind of had that, I suppose, foundation of uh, being able to look at things uh, yeah, and, and take them on board because they didn't have any pre-commitment to any other religion or whatever. And so gradually, they, when I went back home, they said, let's sit down and meditate together. Yeah. So we sit down and meditate. And they say, give us a talk. <laughs> so, I, so I give them a talk about Buddhism. It's kind of weird. I, I remember they invited me to all of these holidays. I had to kind of go with holidays on them various places. And, and one year, we, the whole family was there. Yeah, my sister, my brother, and their girlfriends and boyfriends or whatever. And then my father commanded me to give Dhamma talk to everyone. Yeah, yeah. so I give it to... And that's kind of nice, yeah? It's kind of, it's kind of strange to give a Dhamma talk to your family. It's a very different feeling. But it's also very nice in a way. Because you're sharing something very beautiful and profound with the people who have been closest to you for a long time. And that was really marvelous. And eventually, my father said to me, he said to me one day, he said to me, I used to be your teacher, now you're my teacher. That's kind of extraordinary when that happens. And so that is, to me, was a sign of parents who were very open-minded, very good, very humble. My father was a very successful businessman in many ways, but still had that humility there. I thought that was quite quite impressive, actually. And uh, so that's... um, uh, so that's kind of marvelous. And my mother was also kind of a very similar kind of character, very, very, you know, supportive and very kind. And she is still alive. She's now, how old is she now? 83 years old or whatever. She still drives around her own, own car in very, in very good health. And uh, she just, last time I spoke to her, said, oh yeah, when you come back to Norway, we have to do some meditation together. So we're going to, you know, sit down and do some meditation together again. And that's kind of wonderful. Uh, I'm doing a two-day retreat in uh, Oslo when I go back, and my, my mother didn't want to come because she had too many things on, but my brother is going to come for that retreat, yeah, going to kind of sit there with me. So it's kind of, you know, and this is one of those beautiful things uh, of being able to kind of pass this on to your family members, and they're taking an interest, being open-minded, being kind of, uh, you know, it's kind of the result of having a good family relationship, uh, I suppose, uh, yeah, and in, the, in the end, uh, so, uh, yeah, so basically, good people, good hearts, kind-hearted, generous people. Uh, and, uh, you know, so I guess I was fortunate getting born into a, a good family. Yeah. Not sure what else to say, yeah, but uh, I think that's probably enough anyway. Okay. When reading the suttas, Sutta Nipata, if we... Uh, want further resources on how to interpret them, uh, where can we find them? Uh, all right, so uh, what I would recommend to do in that case is to read the translation by Venerable Bhikkhu Bodhi. Uh, yeah, he's one of the uh, kind of four, he's probably the foremost translator uh, of the suttas into the English language, and he has translated the Sutta Nipata. And not only that, but the, the, all the commentaries that explain them, together with his own notes that explain the commentaries and the suttas and all of that. Uh, so that is probably the best way to gain kind of a deeper understanding of what is going on there. So uh, that, is the, uh, that is one way to do it. Uh, another way uh, is to just have a general understanding of the suttas. Uh, and the more understanding you have of the suttas in general, the more likely you are to also understand the uh, these kind of obscure suttas, like the Sutta Nipata, because uh, it is your overall kind of grasp of the Dhamma which enables you to interpret any particular text usually. Yeah. So uh, that is a good way. Otherwise, you can listen to 
talks given online. People have given talks about this. People like Bhante Sujato given a series of talks on the Sutta Nipata. Other people do too. So you can find resources online. Just kind of Google the appropriate words and you should be able to find things. All right. So, 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 oh, this is a, what is this? Uh, this is a, a little essay over here. <laughs> Gee, okay, uh, let's see. So this, this looks like a, something positive. Okay, dear, dear Venerable Ajahn, what a great re- this re- retreat this was. What marvelous teachings. What a fantastic elucidator of the teachings and the Buddha you are, Ajahn. We are truly fortunate. <laughs> if the great Arahant Venerable Mahakarjna Mahatero uh, were here today, he would most likely be utterly pleased to know that after about 2,550 years or so, uh, in the far corner of the world, far away from the Middle Land, another Mahatero is elucidating the Dhamma following the way shown by him, helping us understand the path to the deathless, guiding us to the chance from uh, the Asuttama Putujana to the Suttava Arya Savako. Thank you, Ajahn. Uh, in the words of the great King Pasenadi, you are the Dhamma Chetiyajan, a true monument to the Dhamma, Majima 86. All right. <laughs> we are so fortunate to be here and benefit from your teachings, Adan. Much gratitude to Venerable Ajahn Brahm too for investing time and helping produce a rare gem of a member of the Sangha of your calibre. Okay, that's wonderful. So, uh, <laughs> Then uh, we have uh, some more. This is, this is just one long letter of gratitude to everyone. This is wonderful. Much gratitude to Lehar, Christina, and all the volunteers for organizing this marvelous retreat. Uh, much gratitude to the fellow retreatants who are a fantastic group of Dhamma friends and meditate to meditate with. Uh, may we all be able to see the Dhamma from within in this very life. Uh, as you said a couple of days ago, Ajahn, the universe cannot collapse. The universe will have to wait. We wish you a wonderful trip to Europe and a safe traveling with much gratitude, reverence, and metta. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. Okay, I, I think that's enough. I don't feel like reading any more questions now. I feel like... <laughs> 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 no, but that's, that's very, very kind of you. So much appreciated. So, uh, but... Uh, yeah, so it's wonderful, and uh, I, of course, can only concur in that. That uh, it's been. I always enjoy teaching these retreats, and it always tends to be a good atmosphere on these retreats. Everyone has been putting in so much wonderful effort to make it work out, and of course, everyone who is here, who kind of follows the routine and does the right thing, and so many good hearts coming together, always creates for a wonderful situation. So that's marvelous. Anyway, let's. Uh, carry on <laughs> and see what comes out of the rest of this. <clears throat> okay, so these are more notes of gratitude. I'll put them to one side. We can read them up. Maybe towards the end we can take the Dhamma questions first. So let's see. Dear Ajahn, so what did Ajahn Brahm say when you asked him if he enjoyed the teaching here. What, what, what did I say? You're saying that you're teaching is sometimes a burden. 
Oh, right. Okay. Yeah. And you asked him if he enjoyed it, and <laughs> okay. you were restrained and didn't tell us what he Okay, right, okay. I've I always forgotten about that. I'm kind of talking so much, I forget about what you said. Okay, right, okay. Yes. So, um, yeah, it's interesting because someone like, you know, the, the thing about the Dhamma is that um, uh, you, uh, someone like Ajahn Brahm, he would always prefer just to go to his cave and meditate, yeah, because you have access to these really profound states of stillness and peace. And I think Ajahn Brahm is not really a kind of natural extrovert at all. He doesn't really enjoy being with people. And it's the deeper your meditation is, the less of a natural extrovert you tend to become anyway. Yeah. Yeah, the Buddha himself was always leaning towards meditation and being by himself. Yeah. But at the same time, you know, it's also joyful to be able to help out. Yeah? So uh, the idea of passing these teachings on and giving other people a chance to experience the same thing, this is one of the things Ajahn Brahm enjoys the most. I think all he enjoys doing really is those two things, meditating on his own and then helping others trying to achieve these similar kind of states. And if you want to make Ajahn Brahm happy, get into a profound state of meditation and then go to him and thank him for his teachings yeah, and for helping you achieve those things because that's what he lives for. Yeah. That's kind of his purpose. Yeah. So that's when he becomes really happy when other people achieve a similar kind of state. So, so uh, the idea of being a disciple really means following uh, the example and following the teachings of the teacher. Yeah. And that is really how we make them happy. Yeah. And uh, someone like Ajahn Brahm, he also has the ability to enjoy whatever he does. Yeah? There are certain things in life you have to do. Huh? So you learn to change your perception. You know that perception is very malleable. It's like a mirage. It means you can change it into anything, right? Uh, so just change it into a different mirage. That's all you have to do. <laughs> One mirage is as good as any other mirage. So you use whatever mirage is most suitable and you enjoy everything. Yeah? And you understand that they are uncertain and unreliable. Huh? And then you enjoy things as a consequence. So it's kind of, um, it's not, you know, it's kind of uh, this kind of flexibility which is really part of the, uh, the way he, uh, he does things. Uh, Dear Adan, thank you for the teachings on the aggregates today here. Could you please explain a bit more about the choices and why it is necessary to have it in the addition to the other four. Would it be correct to say that it is where our memories and habits are stored, so to say, here? Yeah. Thank you, Vimeta. Um, not really. The habits, in part, perhaps, but the choice is, is the will, yeah? Is the will, is the thing that makes you do anything in the world. Whenever you do anything, you have to apply that desire, that choice to do it, yeah? You know, I, if you want to come in here to meditate, you have to choose to come here. Otherwise, you're not going to move from your room to this hall. That is the choice. That is the will which makes you do things. Every time you open a mouth to say something, you have to want to speak. Otherwise, you're not going to speak. And that wanting, that will that lies behind that, this is what is meant by sankhara. And whenever you think, you have to have a will behind the thinking that makes you think. Otherwise, the mind is going to be quiet. We actually want to think when we think. Sometimes that's kind of terrible, isn't it? Uh, you look at some of those souls and think, yeah, I really want that. Gee, that's kind of scary. That's kind of really unpleasant sometimes. But uh, we, have, we are so complex, so we have all these kind of thoughts uh, in our mind. Uh, yeah? 
And um, so that is, the, that is what the choice is about. Uh, yeah? The will is about. Uh, the idea of uh, going one way or another. And that, when your mind becomes peaceful, that is what you're calming down. Uh, yeah? the, uh, that will, that doing activity within, uh, that is what is calming down. Uh, it's not really habits. Habits, because habits come in many other forms as well. Habits can be, peace can become a habit. Yeah? It can be just, you know, in other words, the lack of will can also be a habit. So habit is more broad. But yes, sometimes the will is also habitual as well. That is true. So you have to have it in addition to the other four because this is a very important part of our sense of existence or who we take ourselves to be here. Okay, dear Ajahn, apart from breaking your practice routine, are there any other tips you can give us to become less rigid and tight with the practice? Much respect and gratitude. Thank you for the wonderful Dhamma teachings. Um, Less rigid and tight with the practice. You just have to learn not to force the practice. Yeah, this is really the thing. And very often the reason we force it is because we are not patient enough. So you think that you have to watch the breath, and because you think you have to watch the breath, you grasp onto the breath. And the moment you grasp onto anything, the practice becomes rigid and tight and uncomfortable. So this is kind of why it is so important to allow the practice to happen by itself to sit back, to enjoy the process, instead of, instead of doing the process, allowing the process to happen. That's two different things. We do too much. And sometimes we're not even aware that we do it. Yeah, it is so habitual, the idea of doing the meditation, that we just kind of do it straight away. People often sit down and they grab onto the breath straight away. And then they breathe. And then, of course, it becomes uncomfortable. So the idea is to make mindfulness arise because you are living well. If you live really well and then you relax on your meditation seat, mindfulness will come because you feel good about yourself. You want to be present. You want to be here. You feel good. Uh, The mind already is purified from too much uh, negativity and anger and ill will so it doesn't run about in all different directions. Uh, Yeah, it's kind of nice already. And then mindfulness arises fairly not necessarily easily, but after, after a while it arises by itself because you have lived really well. You have a positive mind state. Uh, you wish other people well. You have established all of this right criteria and then mindfulness tends to come. Uh, and when mindfulness is there, then kind of the breath is there as well. Uh, but if the mindfulness isn't strong enough, uh, that's when you have to use willpower. Uh, so this is why those sep- first six factors of the Noble Eightfold Path are so important, because they allow the mindfulness to become natural rather than forced. Yeah, so, uh, and sometimes we're not ready, and it's okay not to be ready. Yeah, if you feel that you know, it is too difficult or too hard or whatever, then make sure that when you go back, you practice better the first six factors. Listen to more Dhamma talks. Understand more about right view. Guide your mind in the right direction. Live even better. Yeah? And as you do this, these things tend to, eventually they will come together. Yeah? So, um, yeah. And otherwise, those similes that I mentioned yesterday about just learning just to sit back and relax, allowing things to be, yeah? 
What does it feel like when you really relax in your life? Uh, when you're really at ease? Uh, when is that? Uh, what do you do at that particular time? Nothing probably, right? Uh, and you're really relaxed. And that kind of relaxedness that you have when you're really relaxed, you want to bring that into your meditation practice. All right. <laughs> um, okay, okay, let's, uh, okay. Australia's best kept, not so secret, secret. Uh, pardon my ignorance, but how does the mind feature in the discussion of the five khandhas? Uh, it seems to express itself through each of the five khandhas, e.g. in mind-made forms, mind-consciousness. Does it then follow that with the repulsion of the khandhas, we are repelling the mind? Ajahn, does it make sense for you to lead us in Anapanasati meditation tomorrow morning? Thank you for the wonderful teaching. Um, okay, so how does the mind feature in the discussion of the five khandhas? Well, the five khandhas, that is the entire makeup of a human being. Yeah. That's why I said these are the aspects of personality. They are the aspects of who we are, mind and body and everything. Yeah. So yes, in a sense, you can say you are, ultimately, you are repelled by the mind itself. Yeah, this is kind of what this, this is all about. But we divide it up in such a way we can kind of understand how it, uh, in, what it is. And this is profound. Yeah, this is really hard to understand. And eventually, when you see these things... This is why we come to the end of existence. As long as you are, have an interest in the mind, the mind is important, you cannot really come to the end of existence or the end of rebirth. So these are some of the deepest aspects of the Buddhist path. Can you lead this Anapanasati meditation tomorrow morning? Well, the idea has really been to, you know, Anapanasati is just relaxing and watching the breath. Yeah, there's, there's kind of what we have been trying to do all the way through. It is the most simple thing in the world uh, once you kind of get it right. Sit back, uh, be mindful, and the breath is there. Uh, yeah, it's really, really easy. You just have to have the right attitude towards the breath, uh, having a sense of friendship to the breath, seeing the breath as something wonderful and marvelous that takes you into meditation in the right way. Make sure you establish mindfulness before you do it. Uh, yeah, so continue doing this after this. Uh, we finished the Q&A tonight. Come back to the breath again. Just relax. Sit back. Enjoy what you're doing. And then this is going to work out. I, you know, the main leading in meditation is actually just some very simple advice and giving rise to mindfulness. Once the mindfulness is there, the breath meditation happens pretty much by itself. Yeah? You just go with the flow. Enjoy what is happening here. <laughs> okay, I'll put that to, to one side for now. So, uh, so many nice notes here. I don't, you know, we, <laughs> this is really, really cool. So it's wonderful that uh, this is really nice. Let's see if there's any more Dhamma questions before we uh, get into all the, uh, the wonderful notes. So, so um, dear Ajahn, please give. Give an example to show the difference between feeling and consciousness in the five aggregates. So, in a, in a practical way, in terms of 
ordinary experience, consciousness and feeling is always go together. Yeah? There is no such thing as having feeling without consciousness, nor is there such a thing as having consciousness without feeling. Yeah? Anytime you are conscious, anytime you are aware of anything, there's going to be both consciousness and feeling. Yeah? So we use this more just as a way of thinking about the different aspects of the mind. Yeah? One aspect of the mind is how you feel right now. Do you feel happy? Do you feel suffering? Do you feel pleasant, unpleasant or neutral? What do you feel about this situation? Yeah? The thing which knows the feeling, that's consciousness. The feeling is either the happiness or the suffering in the present. That's the difference. How do you know that you're happy? That is the consciousness. The actual happiness, that's the feeling here. Yeah? But in reality, they come together. Okay. Dear Ajahn Mamali, this morning you mentioned that we should move from pleasant feeling uh, Vedana towards neutral feeling. Yeah? I usually make myself comfortable to raise gladness or joy, not only for meditation but for daily activities as well. Could you please elaborate how to reduce attachment to pleasant feeling, yeah? but still having gladness to start meditation into a deep state? Lastly, much gratitude to all your teachings. Thank you so much for Venerable Akaliko and Lehar and Christina and the fellow retreatants. Um, so, uh, reduce attachment to pleasant feeling. Don't worry about that. Don't, don't worry about the attachment to a little bit of attachment to pleasant feeling. It's okay. Yeah? Uh, yeah, one of the things about the path is that pleasant feeling is the pathway to samadhi. Without pleasant feelings, you're not going to be able to practice this path. It's part and parcel for what this path is about. Don't attach to it. Don't deliberately attach to it. That's not, not really the point. But don't try to be too aloof and separated from it either. Because if you do, you may not be able to achieve those states. Yeah? It's okay to achieve these states. I'm not suggesting you should grasp them because that's counterproductive, but just allow them to be. They are good things. They are positive parts of the path. Down the track, when I mentioned neutral feeling, what I was talking about was something really, really down the path. Yeah? We're talking about the fourth jhana states. This is always the danger of talking about the highest ranges of the path because people sometimes think you should practice according to those states. But no, you should wait for those states to happen by themselves. They are way down the track. In the meantime, enjoy the pleasure of the path. The pleasure is an integral part of the path. Without the pleasure, you won't be able to practice this path fully. Yeah? Meditation, samadhi happens because of happiness, because of joy, because of sukha. Without those qualities, you won't be able to achieve samadhi. It's as simple as that. So uh, don't, don't worry about that. Enjoy the happiness. Please continue, find gladness in your daily activities, enjoy. That's wonderful if you can do that. And don't try too hard, though, to give rise to these feelings. The most, one of the most important things on the path is to look for the causes of things rather than actually trying to deliberately give rise to the results. So the happinesses that we find in meditation are results. Our job is to put in the causes, yeah? So it's more about thinking about the world in the right way. Yeah, contemplating your blessings or whatever, doing, thinking in the right way, and then the happiness and joy comes from that, uh, instead of trying to force the joy and the happiness. Uh, 
Yeah, so just live well, just be kind, say, say a kind word to somebody, and suddenly you feel joy because you're saying a kind word. Oh, I'm feeling happy about that. Yeah, that is the kind of joy you want. Not, to, not try to look too hard to look for these things, because if you try too hard to look for them, we tend to crush them as we do so. Okay. Dear Arjan, from today's teaching about non-self, uh, uh, in the all-form paragraph, past, future, present, uh, external, internal, coarse and fine, inferior, superior, far or near, what are those? How uh, they have to do with non-self, especially the last two? All right. So um, the, um, the thing is that... Um, Form can be experienced in many, many different ways. Yeah? Sometimes we are attached to the past. We think about in the past. Oh, in the past, yeah. I'm kind of, uh, you know, sometimes we get older, put on a bit of weight, yeah. And I think, oh, in the past, I was so kind of nice and kind of slim. Now I'm kind of getting fat. You think, oh, in the past, my form was so wonderful, yeah. Whoa, I, I wish I, I was more like that. So you hold on to the image of the past, something like that, yeah. Um, so this is kind of the past or the future. You have an idea about future form. What are you going to be like in the future or whatever? <laughs> past, present, and future. External and internal. Um, so sometimes we can grasp onto internal form. It means our own form. Or we can grasp onto external forms. Yeah? And remember, the idea of self is often more than just the idea of... Uh, uh, the personal I am this is also about what we think belongs to us. Yeah? That is like how the self kind of extends into the world. Yeah? So there may be external forms, maybe your partner in life. Yeah? Maybe you feel this is my partner. The moment you say my partner, there's this degree of ownership there right away. Yeah? And everyone has that degree of ownership. So it's like the sense of self goes into the world in this sense. Coarse and fine, it can be the sense of self or the form you have in deep meditation, yeah? or it can be the sense of self you have when you get reborn in a Deva Loka, for example. Coarse sense of self, coarse form is the body form you have now as a human being, or maybe as an animal. Inferior and superior is a similar kind of thing, yeah? refined and coarse. And then far and near, far and near, again, it could refer to things that you are attached to that are far away from here. Yeah? It is even possible to... There are certain teachings whereby you take something which is far away as yourself. External form can actually, in certain spiritual teaching, be taken as yourself. It's kind of weird, yeah? but this apparently is, happens also in the world. So you see this as your, yourself is something external to you. It's kind of strange, but apparently there are such teachings. So... In all these ways, yeah, the, point, the point really is that uh, whatever there is in the world of form, it is not you, nor does it belong to you. Huh? That's really what it comes down to. Huh? The other thing to remember is that external forms, uh, they are experienced by you. It is in your experience, ultimately everything. And because it is experienced by you, it is that experience of form uh, yeah, that you should not be attached to or take as yourself or take as yours, or whatever. Okay. I understand, this is mine, I am this, this is myself, but I do 
how, but how do I relate the characteristics of non-self to inferior, superior, far near, etc.? Many thanks, Ajahn. Your disciple there. Okay, disciple, I hope that uh, is okay. <laughs> so that's, that's good. Uh. Right, uh, okay. Dear Ajahn, uh, do you feel that Buddhism can tend towards a slightly nihilistic, pessimistic view of existence? <laughs> uh, yes, probably. Yeah, probably true. Yeah. <laughs> I see this manifest as an occasional subtle resentment in myself and other Buddhists towards the fact that we exist at all. Or is this attitude exactly the point to provide the fuel for pers pursuing cessation? What say you? <laughs> um, it, it, the resentment in yourself and others towards the fact that we exist is not really useful. Uh, yeah? Don't resent the fact that we exist. Uh, it's just an intellectual idea that existence is no good, but that doesn't really get you anywhere. It is not about intellectual ideas. Uh, these are experiential things. Uh, and when you experience them, they actually turn out to be very Beautiful, yeah, these are very beautiful realizations. When you let go of this, all of this clinging and holding on, there's no resentment at all. There's just happiness and joy that you're giving up suffering here. Yeah? So if you're coming from an intellectual point of view, we tend to grasp these things in the wrong way here. Yeah? So don't worry too much about these things in your daily life or how you deal with other people. Rather, just focus on those basic things that make the path work. Yeah? Those basic things at the beginning of the path, the first six factors, just the idea of kindness and right view and listening to the Dhamma in the right way. That is what we should do, focus on in our daily life, being generous. And as we do that, we actually feel joy, we feel happiness. And then the idea of understanding existence really happens when you go on a retreat, when you meditate, and when you get some deep samadhi. It is very strange when you think about the path of meditation. It leads to these extraordinarily beautiful things. So much sukha, so much piti, so much pamuja, so much pasadi, all the peace, all the happiness. And the more peace and happiness you have, the better you understand suffering isn't that kind of weird? Yeah, you cannot understand suffering without happiness. Happiness is what makes you understand suffering. Yeah. So if you take it the wrong way and you suffer because you're thinking about the path, actually you're getting it the wrong way around. You have to build up the happiness to become incredibly powerful and stable. Then you can understand suffering. Yeah. Because what you're doing is you're understanding that that happiness you have now, you can see it has arisen because you abandoned all of these other things, so they must be suffering. So you understand suffering here. And eventually you gain the insights. So um, be careful about these kind of intellectual yeah, uh, things uh, on the path, because very often they, uh, they miss the point. Uh, it is very hard to understand what it means to what cessation actually means. It's actually impossible to really understand unless you also see the idea of non-self. That is really the critical thing that you need to do. So pessimistic view of existence, yeah, it is okay to try to see existence for what it is, not to be, you know, to be kind of uh, super optimistic. Yeah, the world is going to be a wonderful place. Yeah, we will overcome all wars and quarrels and arguments. We're going to live together in peace and harmony. Everyone is going to love each other, and then we're going to have paradise on earth. Uh, that is not a useful view, right? Uh, 
That is the sort of thing I do not recommend. We need to see things in accordance with reality because that then becomes the fuel for the path. Yeah? So we need to see this existence in, the, in a positive way, not some kind of... Uh, yeah. Anyway, so I hope that helps. So, okay. Dear Azan, I was never one to read the sutta as much, but now I feel an inspiration to memorize and recite the sutta Nipata verses so I can carry them around with me and reflect on them as I go about my days. Is there a correct way to do this? Or should I just do it in whatever way seems most fun to me? That is absolutely the right way. The way that is most fun is the best way here. Yeah, and if you find that some of the words in the Sudanapata are not to your liking, you can even change the words a little bit, uh, as long as it is ballpark, the same meaning. Yeah? Then you have even more fun. You can kind of write your own little verses, yeah, and it becomes really your memory of these teachings. Uh. So that's excellent. You've got exactly the right approach. That's, uh, that is uh, very well done here. Huh? Okay, dear Ajahn Brahmali, are we all just uh, a combination of these four elements? Uh, uh, hearing, tasting, touching, smell, that have come together for a specific purpose. Um, yes, essentially, yeah, hearing, tasting, touching, smelling, seeing, yeah, we have, you have to have bring seeing in there as well, and then you have to bring the mind in there, yeah, the... Uh, thinking and all the experiences through the mind. So really six senses. And they have come together for a specific purpose. Um, not, yeah, I kind of this, the only purpose is to end, yeah, to cease. That's kind of the specific purpose, if you like. Yeah. They haven't really come together for that. They have come together because of delusion, because of misunderstanding, because of craving. That's why they have come together. Not really for a specific purpose. The purpose is just to carry on suffering, really. That's the purpose, I'm not sure if that's a very useful way of thinking of purpose, but uh, <laughs> so, uh, yeah. Okay. So, uh, next one. This is my second note, but I just had to say Lehar and Christina have been amazing. Sadu, sadu, sadu. Sadu. All right, so uh, there you are, Lehar and Christina. You have been amazing. So, <laughs> so uh, Christina is not here. Is Christina here? No, not here. Okay, she's missing out on all these kind of nice things. Okay, that's the third or fourth time that she has been mentioned. That's, so anyway, we have to pass it on her. Dear Venerable Ajahn, this is a note to the friend who is contemplating of retirement. Okay, good. So here you're going to get some advice from a, one of your co-meditators. It would be good to do some part-time work and or volunteering. So there you are. Jana Grove and Amaloka BSW are looking for volunteers, I think. <laughs> and this is very, very smart. Okay. <laughs> If you talk to Lehar and or Christina, you could get more details. You have come to the right place. Solutions are right here with Meta. <laughs> okay, so there you are. So uh, anyway, yeah, that's a probably a good piece of advice. So, okay. 
Still Ajabamali, thank you so much for your teachings. I have enjoyed this retreat tremendously. Also, Leha, Christina, and volunteers and helpers and lay community for all the work you have done. Thank you, thank you. Uh, excellent, uh, marvelous. Uh, there are so many thank you notes. That, that's, uh, that's just really, uh, it's really wonderful. So, next one. Oh, okay. Uh, dear Ajahn, uh, with reference to the simile of the saw, uh, the middle-length discourse number 21, in which uh, Venerable Paguna was mixing too closely with the nuns, uh, I was surprised by this statement. Uh, so even if someone strikes those nuns with the fist stones and uh, clods and swords in your presence, you should give up any desires and thoughts of lay life. If that happens, you should train like this. My mind will be unaffected. I will... Uh, uh, I will burst out no bad words or something like that. Uh, I will remain full of compassion with a heart of love and have no hate. That is how you should train. Does this refer specifically to this scenario? Surely it would be beneficial to all parties if we could intervene and stop this kind of abuse. What does this say about Buddhism to the rest of the world? Thank you for your teachings and inspiring teachings as always. The point here is, of course, not that we should allow abuse to happen. That is not really the point. Of course, we should intervene if we can. Uh, the point is more the kind of mind state that we are supposed to have. Uh, yeah, that's kind of the point here. Uh, there is uh, endless good reasons to be angry about things, to be self-righteous about things in the world, to get upset about how people treat each other. Uh, yeah, it's not, uh, there's lots of apparent good reasons for that, but that is not really the Buddhist path. Uh, yeah, the idea is that we don't, even if someone is close to us, uh, we try to be neutral, we try to have a kind of heart which is even and balanced, and we have metta and compassion. And this particular sutta is exactly about that. It's about, you know, it ends up with a simile of the soul. And the simile of the soul is kind of, again, one of those very high bars to clear. Yeah, to be able to follow the advice given in the simile of the soul is pretty daunting. But it can be done. This is the point, yeah? For those of you who don't know the simile of the saw, the simile of saw is that uh, even if uh, bandits, uh, they take a two-handled saw, this is kind of the saws they had in the old days, uh, and they saw you apart, limb from limb, yeah? saw off your legs, saw off your arms. Uh, yeah? Imagine bandits came, they held you down, yeah? and they started saw, sawing you apart. Uh, how would you feel? Would you say, yeah, oh, that's okay, yeah, okay, uh, you know, uh, you know, yeah. <laughs> Would you have compassion for them? Would you have metta for them? The Buddha says we should have compassion for those bandits, even when they saw us apart, yeah? Like that. That is what the Buddha says. And uh, can it be done? Of course it can be done. And it can be done because, uh, yes, you feel pain right now, but those, and, and of course you will die very quickly if someone starts sawing you apart in that way, and then you're dead, and then you go on to a good destination because you didn't have any hate or ill will. It's just a short-term pain, that's it. Yeah? But those bandits who cut you apart, if you are a good person, uh, imagine if it was a noble person, yeah, an arahant or something, they cut that person apart. Uh, 
wow, the kind of kamma that they're creating for themselves, uh, the kind of destiny that they will go in the future. Uh, they will have enormous amounts of suffering. You will have to suffer for 20 minutes and you'll be okay. Uh, they will have to suffer for a long, long time into the future. Uh, and you want to tell them, you don't know what you're doing. What are you doing this for? Why do you want to saw anyone apart for anyway? Kind of a crazy idea to saw people apart. You can't go around in the world sawing people apart in this way. It's kind of nuts. And uh, so you have compassion for them because they're obviously blind and stupid and walking around in darkness. So this is kind of what the Buddha is telling us to do. And the same thing, the idea here with the, the nuns here, the bhikkhunis, the idea is that this monk was getting too involved with the bhikkhunis, uh, hanging around with them, yeah, like, as if they were a girlfriend or something like that. Uh, that is the problem. And if someone is harming your girlfriend, you're going to get upset, uh, not because you're harming someone else, because you're harming someone who is attached to you. Uh, that attachment is the problem that they're pointing to here. But it doesn't mean we shouldn't do anything. If someone hurts the nuns, of course we should help the nuns. If someone hurts the lay people, we should help the lay people. If someone hurts the monks, we should help the monks. We should always help each other in this way. So it is important to kind of read the, uh, the deeper uh, meaning behind these things. Yeah? And then you understand what is going on here. But again, it's a very high demand. Yeah? And it's very difficult to do and uh, in, in the meantime, we do whatever we can in those difficult situations. So. Do the nuns want to say anything about this? Oh. Don't hurt the nuns, <laughs> okay. Don't hurt the nuns, okay. <laughs> That's very wise, isn't it? <laughs> Don't hit the monks either, okay. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, okay, is it reasonable? What do you think about this advice, Vendabhajente, in the... Kakkochupama Sutta. Is it a good advice or is it bad advice? What is your take on this? Uh, have any opinions? <laughs> yeah. All right. Okay. So uh, let's um, put it to one side uh, and uh, go on to the next one. Uh. Dear Ajahn, thank you so much for your teaching, support and kindness throughout this retreat. I feel lucky to have a teacher like you in my life. I was curious, did the Buddha say whether there is a beginning of time and existence? If so, what is its origin? What realm did all beings start off in? Additionally, are there a fixed number of beings or do new beings come into existence with metta? Now we're really getting into the philosophical side of things. <laughs> and the Buddha warned us, don't do too much philosophy because it's going to lead astray. Well, I actually didn't say that specifically, but uh, that's how I read his words. Um, so is there any beginning? And this is kind of one of those very interesting things about the word of the Buddha, is that uh, the Buddha says that no beginning can be found. Yeah, there is no beginning, he says, of beings wander around in ignorance and craving. There's no beginning to be found. And this is kind of unique to the Buddhist teachings. Almost all religions in the world, one of the main ideas and one of the main purposes, it seems, of religion is to explain why we are here. How come the world started? Yeah, God made the world. And that's the beginning here. Yeah. The problem is it doesn't really explain very much. God made the world. What about God? Where did God come from? It's just kind of, you know, kind of 
making it kind of another step, but that step doesn't change the fact that something had to be there, yeah? So it doesn't really explain very much. So in, in Buddhism, it's a very different attitude. In Buddhism, actually, there is no first point. And that, to me, makes really good sense, yeah? Because things will always have to be caused by something else. The idea of a first point doesn't really make any sense, because why, how would that first point have come into existence? And even modern cosmologists have a big problem with this because they say, well, the Big Bang is the beginning. But then what? What happened before the Big Bang? Right? And this is one of the big mysteries of kind of a modern cosmology. And they don't know. And they, you know, and they are joking with each other. What they say sometimes, they say, give us one miracle and we can explain everything else. Give us the miracle of the Big Bang and then we can explain everything else from there. But that is still a miracle. So, and... Um, so this is one of those, to me, very, where Buddhism actually gets much closer to the reality of things than almost any other philosophy or religion in the world. Uh, there is no discoverable beginning, as the Buddha says. Uh, he doesn't just say that there is no beginning, he says there is no discoverable beginning, which is another important aspect to this. Uh, yeah, because he doesn't say there is no beginning, because that's impossible to say, because you cannot really go back in time to, you know, to, um, you can only go back so far in time, and you don't know what happened before that. So the Buddha says, it's very pragmatic, he says, the evidence I have, I cannot discover a beginning. That's all I know, there is no discoverable beginning here. So it's kind of a very pragmatic approach to uh, the universe and everything here. So no origin, yeah, to be found uh, what realm did all beings start off in? Well, actually, these, all of these realms have always existed. And sometimes they come and sometimes they go. Some realms may disappear for a while. When the universe kind of goes together, only some realms may remain. And then they kind of expand out again and these realms disappear and they're always moving and morphing into something else. It's this very kind of mind-boggling thing, this sansaric existence. Is there a fixed number of beings? Well... Uh, we, we know it is not fixed, yeah, because when you have arahants, they disappear once and for all. So it's certainly, at the very least, we can say that it's, uh, I, you know, going down is at least one possibility. Yeah. But this leads to this conundrum. If there are arahants, people or beings, making an end of sansaric existence, then how come there are still beings here? If time goes back into the past, infinitely in the past, shouldn't everyone be enlightened already? That kind of leads to a strange conundrum. And that leads to the idea that maybe new beings do come into existence. Because otherwise it's hard to explain why we are still around. Maybe. It's just speculation on my part. I have no idea. I'm just kind of making it up. But uh, that's, uh, <laughs> that's how it seems, right? It kind of seems to be logical... Um, deduction from this, but uh, honestly, I have no idea. That's the honest truth. It's one of those big conundrums in life. But it probably doesn't matter that much. As long as we can practice the path and we can make an end of this whole mess, then we are probably, that's probably what matters. Um, time is going very fast, so I'm going to carry on until I finish. So uh, I don't know how much longer it will be, maybe another 20 minutes or half an hour. Not, not that much longer, hopefully. So let's see what happens. Okay, this is another 
thank you note. We just take a few thank you notes as we go along because kind of the interspersed well with the Dhamma kind of makes, makes everyone feel good and nice. Dear Ajahnamali, thank you for being so, such a great and compassionate teacher. Thank you for showing and explaining the Buddha's words to us. Great thank you to Lehar and Christina, to all the lay people who provided the food, and all the others for all the support in making this a wonderful retreat. My gratitude, Ajahn, for your teaching has made a difference in my life. Meshmetta Sadhu times three here. It's great. Wonderful, marvelous. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, excellent. So, next one. Dear Ajahn, in teaching us early Buddhism, I feel you are not, you not only honor the Buddha, but uh, you who show that you believe in our capacity to follow his path. That makes us believe in ourselves too. That belief energizes and directs us, so we might have a chance. Thank you for believing in us. Okay, and good luck to you. Yeah, it's not, it's not really about believing in anyone. Yeah? It's just the idea that this is a path that works on the human mind. It works on the mind. So if you have a mind, you are on the, you know, <laughs> this path is going to work on you. Whether you want to or not, you're going to become more happy. Even if you want to be a miserable person, you're going to gradually <laughs> emerge from that misery and move towards happiness. Yeah? Isn't that wonderful? This is kind of the beauty of this path. Yeah? It leads you in that direction regardless of what happens. So it is really about having a mind. So this idea that we doubt ourselves is actually just a, an expression of our identity, our holding on to some kind of identity, misguided in a way. Yeah? The path works. This is a nat these are all natural principles. The mind is a natural principle. The path, working on, the, on that mind, is another natural principle. Natural principles are like the laws of the universe. Yeah? These are mental laws that the Buddha discovered on his night of awakening. Yeah? So, uh, yeah. So there you are. Yeah. Okay. Okay, I am not sure I get the difference between this I am and this is not myself. Uh, thank you. Uh, so, uh, 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 this I am and this is not myself. So, one of the, there's very slight differences between these things, yeah? And uh, uh, sometimes it doesn't matter so much. The main idea is just that there is nothing there that you identify with one way or another. But one of the differences here is that sometimes we identify with a specific aspect of this mind. You identify, for example, with the knowing. Yeah? I am the knowing. Yeah? I'm the one who is aware. That awareness is what I am. Uh, at other times we identify with something larger. Yeah? We identify with maybe the whole mind. And then... Uh, so then we say, for example, that uh, uh, um, uh, this particular aspect yeah, belongs to that mind or belongs to the larger sense of self. Uh, it is an aspect of you, for example. Yeah? So um, I would have to look up the sutta again to get the exact uh, um, feeling here. But basically the idea is that you aspect, you, you, your sense of self is within a larger thing, which is, uh, you, know, you take to be 
you, or you take to be an aspect of what you are. Uh, sometimes the self is within the larger configuration. Sometimes the larger configuration is within the self. So there's all these kind of variations on a theme, basically. Uh, I'm not really getting very, uh, getting very <laughs> clear about this now. Uh, but the basically, it's just different ways of thinking about the idea of a self and what it is and what you are. That's really all it is. So, um, yeah, I'm not sure if it is really necessary to go any more deeply into that. Uh, if you go to some of the sutta classes we have at the Maloka Center, we go into some of these issues more deeply. Like, for example, the uh, Majjhima Nikaya, the Middle Length Sayings number two, uh, the uh, Sabhasava Sutta, all the defilements, uh, and that goes into s- quite a bit of length, I think, about the various ideas of self and how it relates to these khandas in various ways. Uh, yeah? And you can have a look at that and it will hopefully give you more idea about this. Uh, but it's not all that important. The main point is just that the sense of self somehow uh, is related to these five khandas, these five groupings. Uh. Okay, with regard to avoiding sensual pleasures like a snake's head, uh, I've been thinking about a particular example, which is the gym. Uh, an activity that I enjoy, but which triggers many sensual thoughts because of the people there, uh, the way they look, behave, dress, etc. So to avoid these defilements arising, uh, am I supposed to ideally stop going to the gym? Or is there that too extreme? Because even if the answer is yes, and please say so if it is, I have to admit I quite enjoy the activities I do there. So what are your thoughts on this issue? Um, the thing is that, uh, you know, as long as you live in that sensory world, there is going to be things that trigger these sensual thoughts, yeah? That is just the way it is in that world. And uh, yes, maybe you can reduce them a little bit by not going to the gym, but I mean, it's, you're still going to be triggered by other things if it isn't triggered by that, uh, because that's just the nature of that uh, uh, sensual mind. Uh, it's going to be triggered by these things. Uh, and... Uh, so uh, it, it, there isn't any right answer to this. Yeah, I don't know exactly how you live your life uh, apart from this. Uh, whether you you know live with a partner, for example, and you uh, or you live by yourself in a you know as a, as a if you live by yourself and you kind of live a celibate life already, then maybe stopping going to the gym is useful. Uh, but if you live by the, with a partner and having a more ordinary kind of life, uh, then maybe it, it's not probably not going to make all that much difference anyway. So it depends on all kinds of things, on how you live. Uh, yeah? As a monk, I would definitely not recommend going to the gym. Yeah? <laughs> it's, it's not going to be very useful. But, uh, so just feel it out for yourself. Yeah? Find out what is right, what works for you. And try different things. Maybe don't go one week and see if it makes a difference to your mind. Uh, check it out. Yeah? Try to investigate these things. Uh, there isn't any right answers in these kind of questions. Uh. Okay. Dear Ajahn, I was recently treated rather badly by my boss and co-workers. I cannot leave my job. That is just not possible. The situation has changed. I think they realized they were in error. I was able to forgive, yet I'm still emotionally scarred by what happened. 
I see the good in them, but it is tinged with fear and apprehension. I feel I'm holding something back when I interact with them uh, or protecting something. Uh, the boss is now also at times uh, threatened by me, and so I feel deeply unsafe with her as she is still not seeing me <coughs> in a positive light. Uh, some people are nicer to me, uh, but uh, with uh, a fear, a few, I wonder if it is sort of <coughs> politically motivated niceness. Uh, and I can't help wondering who the fair weather friends are. It's a challenging situation and difficult to navigate. Uh, sometimes one has to speak and interact. I try to do so with uh, more delicacy because I have learned, rightly or not, that it is best to disappear and to only speak and be noticed, especially by some, as little as possible. I would be so very grateful for anything you can say about these matters uh, with respect and much matter. Mm. Uh, yes, this is uh, kind of tricky. Yeah, this is, uh, uh, this is <laughs> one of the reasons why the Buddha said life is suffering. Yeah, these things happen in life. This is part of uh, existence sometimes and very, very, can be very difficult. And um, it's hard to give advice if you have been kind of if you have been burnt then you're going to be afraid of the fire it's kind of that's kind of how it is you know you you know that if someone has treated you badly it can happen again in the future but uh, i suppose the idea is that um, again not to take it personally huh? this is kind of the general kind of the deep idea very hard to do huh? but in the end that is kind of how you have to do things so you don't take it personally. Remember, it doesn't really have anything to do about you. It has to do with them. They are the problem. They are at fault. And uh, it's good. so you can, you know, you can uh, hopefully maybe shrug it off a little bit more when you understand that the problem is with them and not with you. Uh, um, and in the end, uh, yeah, in the end, it's going to be over. It's only going to last so long. It lasts for a while. Uh, things are impermanent. This too will pass. Uh, and eventually you will come out of this, like come out of everything. Nothing lasts forever. And in the meantime, you just have to negotiate that, diffi that difficult situation in a, a skillful way. One of the things that I have always found in my own life is that whenever something difficult comes about yeah, with other people, and it's usually in relationships with other people that things are difficult, actually it's also a great opportunity to learn it's a great opportunity to understand more about compassion, to understand more about being accepting of people who are difficult in your life, yeah? to kind of deal with people in a... Uh, uh, you know, being able to kind of be around people who are, even, who are difficult. So what you do is that you protect yourself as much as you can by stepping away, by being on your own, not interacting with people when they are difficult. And then when, when you have to interact, well, then you try to have a mind of compassionate understanding yeah, and then dealing with them in a compassionate way. Yeah. And I have found, at least in my life, uh, yeah, this may be more beyond maybe what I have experienced before, but uh, that usually that kind of works reasonably well. Uh, then you're able to deal with difficult people uh, because in their presence you feel a sense of compassion for them, even though you may be uh, a little bit fearful that they might treat you badly again in the future. 
So it's a, very, it's a very difficult situation. And of course, in the meantime, if you have the opportunity to look for another job, yeah, then you may want to do that as well and try to change. Because uh, there's always uh, ways out. Yeah? And then one day that way out will appear. And then you do leave that job and you leave those people behind. We, are, we should never feel that we are forced to be in difficult relationships or in difficult situations. Sometimes it is not the Buddhist virtue to stay in a difficult relationship. In fact, I would say the opposite. If you, sometimes you have to be kind to yourself and you may have to leave a difficult relationship because it is abusive. It lets you down. It is difficult. Yeah? That is not, there's nothing wrong with that because we have to look after ourselves just like we look after everyone else. So uh, it is a difficult situation you are in. Uh, try to see it as a learning experience. Uh, try to find another a way out, something else that you can do. Uh, suddenly one day those people who were difficult for you, suddenly they will be gone. Maybe they will leave the job for whatever reason. Uh, this, oh, things always change. Suddenly things have changed around. Yeah? Before you know it, uh, things, are, things are gone. Uh, people have died, who knows what. Uh, and then uh, uh, hopefully it will you will be able to carry on in this way. Huh? But uh, yes, it is not easy. And this is kind of one of the challenges of life. And dealing with these kind of things is one of the things that actually make you ultimately grow on the path. Huh? And then take some time out. Yeah, come here, uh, do some retreats, stay at the monastery for a while, uh, uh, do whatever you can to kind of uh, get that balance again in your mind. Uh, and then... Uh, uh, hopefully you will uh, gradually find a way through this. Uh, so, good luck here. Okay, I have realized I view people with contempt and judgment. <laughs> okay, that's very honest. Yeah. Okay, this realization is slowly making me stop yet the negative perceptions automatically still arise. It occurs to me that others may struggle with this too. Many in the world would just believe their views uh, uh, making for a dangerous world. How to change ourselves and yet stay a bit safe in this dangerous world? <coughs> so, uh, uh, yes, uh, this is, uh, you know, this is... Uh, Excellent that you are kind of seeing your, some of these qualities yeah, that are there and uh, hopefully that you can change. It is such an important thing to be honest with ourselves. We all have some negative qualities that we can work on and overcome. And you have exactly the right attitude. Yeah? You see the qualities and then you have the attitude of wanting to change. That's marvelous. So you already you have done the most difficult part of the work. Once you have done that, well then change will happen. I can guarantee you, because you are on the right track. Yeah. So, um, what do you have to do instead of judging people and being contemptuous? Uh, you have to understand that people in the world are suffering. Uh, people in the world don't know what they are doing. Uh, people in the world are conditioned in all of these kind of ways. Uh, and when you understand that people are trapped in the way they are, they are trapped to do things that are not nice and to do things like starting wars and being nasty and all of these kind of things. Once you understand that these are traps that people are in, you can start to have compassion for people and you can start even to rejoice in their good qualities. Yeah? 
contempt and judgment happens because we think other people are bad. We think they should be different. We think they, they have the capacity to be something else, but they don't take that capacity. Well, actually, that's wrong. They don't have the capacity to be anything else. We are who we are because we have been conditioned this way. If we had the capacity to be something else, we would be something else. I don't know about you, but I, if I had the choice, I would be kind all the time. Yeah, I would always have ultimate metta and compassion for everyone because I know it feels good. It makes for smooth interactions with the world. But I just can't do it. I can't do it because my personality is stuffed. Yeah, that's <laughs> we all have a stuffed personality. This is part of the problem. And so you... And this is the way to start thinking about people. Then you start to have compassion, yeah? It's this idea of a self that sneaks, it's, uh, sneaks in there. And the idea of self says that we are these entities that can choose and be what we want to be. No, we cannot choose and be what we want to be. We are what we are because of conditions and circumstances and nature and upbringing and past lives and whatever it is that we have been through yeah, in this long round of existence. This is the right way to think. And as you think in this way, you will be able to overcome these things. Yes, the world is dangerous, but you understand that it is dangerous, not because people are bad, but because people are conditioned in this way. So you're still careful because you understand that that conditioning makes them do bad things, but you don't judge them for doing those bad things. And that is really the right way of thinking about this. So, good on you, as they say here in Australia. I'm, I'm an Aussie now, so I have to use some of the more of the Aussie lingo. Good on ya. Good, what was that? Good on ya. Good on ya, okay. Uh, really? Okay. Really? Good on ya. Okay, good on ya. Okay, right. <laughs> so, this is, yeah, so this is the thing you, uh, you get. Thank you, thank you for being a good friend to point out my faults, Venerable. <laughs> <laughs> we need a bit of, okay, okay, good. I, I don't think I will ever be the, the kind of the full get the full Aussie vocabulary. But anyway, we'll uh, we'll work on it. The higher, <laughs> the, the higher training is like all right. Okay, so um, good luck. Uh, so uh, we are coming to the end of the Ajanha. Uh, you spoke recently about how karma refers to desire as well as its objects. Uh, I'm a little confused about what you were saying about this uh, in relation to meditation. Please, can you say a little more? So, um, well, s sometimes karma, we are thinking about this as desire you have in meditation. Yeah, A desire for something arises, you know, you have some fantasy about something, maybe something innocent like food or whatever, but whatever fantasy you have about the sensory realm, that's kind of desire right here and there. But often we also have attachments, and they may not feel like desire in quite that way. Yeah? These are attachments to the world outside, things you own, family members, whatever it is. Yeah? And these are like, you know, if these things you own are threatened, you feel that attachment yeah, that is how you know those attachments and desires. And those attachments, not just the raw desire, but those attachments too, block you in meditation. Huh? Because the mind is kind of holding on to these things in a subtle way. Huh? So you want to overcome some of those attachments. Huh? That is how you reflect on the kind of whole sensory realm, in a sense, huh? to abandon these kind of things. Huh? That's really the idea behind that. Huh? 
Okay, it has occurred to me rather late in life that Ajahn Brahm was right about the 998 good bricks. This retreat, your teaching has inspired in me a determination to go on a positivity drive. I hope it works. Uh, but thank you, thanks. Okay, that's marvelous, that's good. So any little thing, yeah, when you feel that you're moving forward, you're making some progress, you're seeing the world in a new way and gives you a chance to move forward, that is great. And 998 good bricks, that's a marvelous, marvelous result right there. So, now we're coming towards the end. Adran, what is your approach when others behave unskillfully or unkindly towards you? Do you ever feel hurt? <laughs> you seem very equanimous equin and resilient. If you did feel hurt in that moment, how to deal with it so it's not held on to? Um, well, you don't, I don't know how often you see me. I, you know, it's very easy to be resilient right here, yeah, sitting on this stage with lots of nice people around you. How can you not be, not, nothing much to be resilient about, yeah? It's, you just, <laughs> it's very easy, yeah. Um, but do you, every, of course, everyone feels hurt every now and again, yeah? I have to admit, though, it's not, I mean, one of the things about kind of the Scandinavian mindset, you don't really show very much that you feel hurt. Yeah, you may feel hurt, but it kind of is under the surface sometimes. But I don't feel hurt very often. Yeah, and one of the ways, one of the reasons for that is because you realize it's not really your problem. Yeah, when other people treat me badly or I think they have treated me badly, I don't take it personally anymore. Or usually not anyway. Yeah, I think actually if you treat me badly, it's your problem, it's your issue nothing to do with me, you have some problem within yourself that you do this. And I have a compassion for them because I realize that they are trapped at that moment in that bad behavior. So actually I turn it around, instead of focusing on me, I'm focusing on the other person. Yeah? They need compassion because they don't know, they are trapped in that bad behavior at that time. They probably want to be kind, but can't be kind. So how, how are we going to feel about people in that situation? You can have compassion for them. So this is really the, uh, the best way to think about uh, these things, yeah? And uh, then it is very hard to get hurt. But of course, sometimes the kind of more basic instinct kind of kick in, yeah? And you don't really have time to think about things in the right way. And then you, you still get hurt if that happens. So uh, that's how you deal with it, yeah? Try to turn the table. Uh, have compassion for the other person. Uh, because they, if they do bad things, then uh, they have a problem here. Okay, so that is all the questions. I'm going to now read out some of these notes I have kept for the end here. So, <laughs> so, so let's have a look at these notes. Dear Ajahn Brahmali, awesome, awesome, awesome. <laughs> so the... <laughs> This is the translation, Ajahn Brahm's translations of sadhu. Yeah? So this is really sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. Uh, I would like to express my heartfelt gratitude to Ajahn for the beautiful and profound teachings of the Buddha and to Lehar Go and Christina for their support and for all the generous friends and supporters for the time and nourishing food and also the mega metta for Ajahn Brahm, for Jana Grove, for all the beautiful conditions coming together to help us walk in the path of the Dhamma together and practice joyfully, delightfully and wonderful. I rejoice with all the retreat.
Sutta, with, with all at the retreat, sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. Uh, much better, may Ajahn have a pleasant and safe journey and back here. So, excellent. And uh, yes, there's a lot of good work behind this, not least Ajahn Brahm, who was uh, probably, I think, the original idea for the retreat center actually lies in the Buddhist society constitution. Yeah, the constitution was written up with a lot of foresight uh, back in the early days, and in there it had the idea of a monk's monastery, a nun's monastery, retreat center, and a city center. It was all there, kind of just waiting to be realized. And now, the, these days, the Buddhist society of Western Australia is largely realized in all those visionary things. Uh, and uh, Ajahn Brahm has always been the main driving force to realize all of these things. Uh, so, uh, and then all the people coming together, working together, and making it happen. And uh, that really is uh, quite awesome, as you say. All right, so uh, which one should I go first? The glueest one first. Uh, this one, the other one is even longer, so we'll do this one. Dear Ajahn Mali, many, many sincere thanks for your encouragement. Uh, I was feeling a bit miserable yesterday, but you are right. Feelings and perceptions are ever-changing. It came to me uh, middle of last night that uh, fear is blocking me on my meditation for this retreat. Since this realization, my meditation today is much more peaceful. Okay, that's wonderful. I will count my blessings, have more self-compassion, and not so much expectations. But part of the problem is the teacher set a very high standard to follow, both the Buddha and you, okay? So trying to follow the teacher's instructions to live a good life is extremely difficult. Nonetheless, I will try. Finally, many sincere thanks to Lehar and Christina and all the retreat volunteers for a wonderful retreat. You kept us safe, full, satisfied, and happy. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. It is also very inspiring to see the fourfold assembly, exactly, uh, represented in this retreat. And extremely gratifying to see so many young people not intoxicated by youth and following the spiritual path. Sadhu to all of you. Excellent. Marvelous. So people are enjoying it and getting some benefits, which is great. And uh, Okay, last... Uh, Message. So, dear Ajahn Brahmali, thank you for another awesome retreat. Your great knowledge and skillful teaching make the Buddha's words easier to understand and inspire us all. We are very fortunate to have you and very grateful. Regarding the simile of the charcoal pit, I have a couple of suggestions as to its contemporary application. Okay? Charcoal pit is a drug addiction, and the two people forcing the unwilling victim uh, in are the drug dealers and pushers. <laughs> Once in, the victim's suffering will be great, and uh, the way out very difficult. Even if they manage to escape one day, they will bear the scars of that experience for life, and the short-term artificial paradise won't be worth it. Okay, yeah, that's an interesting idea. Um, and, but the personal favorite is this. Uh, online dating uh, is the charcoal pit. <laughs> 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 uh, 
Yes, I think you were onto something when you thought it might relate to sexual pleasures. I've heard countless stories of lies, deceit and promiscuity from those who have tried it. Not nice. It is certainly doesn't live up to its promise of romance and true love. Yet the same friends of mine who have wasted a lot of time and suffered a fair bit too trying to find a meaningful relationship on the internet were insisting that I should do the same. <laughs> Yes, trying to drag me right into that charcoal pit. <laughs> okay, <laughs> that's really that's good. That's uh, yeah. I have I don't know anything about online dating, but it doesn't sound <laughs> doesn't sound very good. Yeah. Uh, Joe, it's called <laughs> Is it called Tinder? Okay. It's what you use yeah. to light a fire. Yeah. There isn't reason why it's called Tinder. Okay. Um, all right. So I'll take your word for that. Um, <laughs> uh, Ajahn, I know this is very long, so I don't mind if you skip most of it at the Q&A. Too late, already, already read it out. <laughs> anyway, it's coming to the very, very end. So much metta to you, to Venerable Akaliko, to the other members of the Sangha. You have all inspired us greatly during this retreat. So that's a wonderful way to end this last Q&A session and we still have a few hours left we can't end everything yet so we still have to kind of settle down a little bit but uh, it is actually quite marvelous to see how well run these retreats are and to a lot of effort lying behind this yeah uh, so many people who have worked really really hard and it's wonderful that actually this is possible in the present day here and it all comes from faith and inspiration in the Buddha's teachings. Uh, everything really comes back to the Buddha at the end of the day. The Buddha is kind of behind there. And it's because of the Buddha that this really is possible. Uh, I often think about it, what it means to be a monk. Yeah, being a monk means you have the ability to go into a town somewhere, go into a village, uh, take uh, your alms bowl, and people will feed you. Why? Not because of your virtue, uh, but because of the Buddha. It's the Buddha that makes that possible. If the Buddha hadn't been there and I had to shave my head and put on a random robe, <laughs> no one would feed me, right? It wouldn't happen. It's because of the Buddha this is possible. And I think that's such an important thing. And for that reason, I have always felt that one of my things that I should always do is to present those teachings of that Buddha. Because if the Buddha supports you, and if he makes this life possible, it is really your duty to then present the teachings of your teacher, who is the Buddha. And this is one of the reasons I have always loved to uh, emphasize the suttas on these kind of retreats. Yeah? Go back to the origin, go back to the earlier source. Uh, and this actually tends to bring everyone together. Uh, because there's one thing that we all have together, regardless of our background, regardless of our root nationality, regardless of everything, and that is the Buddha. It's the one thing that unifies us as Buddhists. Instead of being di divided up by different nationalities, different cultures, Mahayana Buddhism, Theravada Buddhism, all of these kind of things, everyone, regardless of who we are, can unify around the word of the Buddha. This is really what makes this possible, as far as I'm concerned. Anyway, so uh, let's leave it there. We're going to continue tomorrow morning. We're going to finish off the suttas. Uh, but in the meantime, have a very good night. Have a good rest. Uh, carry on your practice. Uh, and we'll see you back again tomorrow morning. Yeah.
Sanghang Namah.